A very warm welcome to this episode of the CC4 Museum of Welsh Cricket podcast, where we're going to look back at the 1997 championship win that Glamorgan had. With us tonight to help us talk about it is Graham Lloyd, uh, author of the official celebration, Daffodil Days, Glamorgan's Glorious Summer. And then three people who were very much involved in the club at that time, Mike Fatkin, Joan Pocket and Alan Rees Chivers. So they'll tell you a little bit about their involvement as we move along. Perhaps we can begin, Graham, with you talking a little bit about the book, how it came about, how you came to write it, and how you came to write it in the way that you did. Yeah, well, there was no introduction, and that was a deliberate decision. Um, but I, if I can talk briefly about the preface, forward, and the dedication. I deliberately didn't want to go with an introduction because I felt it was more important to set up the story of a remarkable season through the reflections of people in more prominent positions than me. I'm just a jobbing journalist, and I was happy to tell the story as its chronicler, but the three-part introduction uh, was an attempt to add a bit of gravitas, some heft, to set the achievement in its historical context. So a preface from the patron, what's not to like about a sprinkling of royal stardust. I'm not sure how much of a cricket fan Prince Charles was, but it seemed like a good idea at the time. He had been invested as Prince of Wales in 1969, the same year as Glamorgan's second county championship win. And um, I thought it would be appropriate to have the Royal Seal of Approval. So I contacted St. James's Palace, suggested a few words of appreciation, and I was absolutely Mm -hmm. delighted to receive uh, a signed preface and a photo And I was especially pleased with the last line. He said, congratulations to everyone involved in what I know was a real team effort. And that really set the tone for the book's structure, which I can tell you a little bit about a little later on. But let me move on to the foreword. I went from a royal prince to a distinguished man of letters, basically. Matthew Engel was the then editor of Wisden. I'd I'd known him mainly through us both working for the Guardian newspaper, and I wanted him to place Glamorgan's achievement in its historical cricketing perspective. And in my view, his beautifully written and amusing analysis of the sporting relationship between England and Wales was perfect. Um, He called Glamorgan a beautifully balanced cricket team in 1997, a small, happy, settled first-team squad. It was the perfect recipe for success. In terms of the dedication, as we all know, Glamorgan had completed a hat-trick of championship wins, and, and I wanted to reflect on the other two through a key member of the 1969 side, Peter Walker, recalling a key member of the 1948 team, Wilf Wooler, who, again, as we all know, was a pivotal and, and what you might call a talismanic figure in the club's history, who had died, actually, in March 1997. Peter was my mentor as a freelance journalist, and he was also my next-door neighbour. And I knew he'd deliver a really fitting tribute to Wilf, who he called he called Cricket's Colossus. And he talked about his friendship, strength of purpose, his dedication to the cause of Glorgan will endure for as long as cricket is played in Wales. And I thought that really just summed Wilf up. So that was the idea behind not having an introduction. Okay, well, we're going to try and follow a little bit of the way you set the story up. Before we do that, looking back now and looking at the season overall, you've kind of hinted at it already. What do you think were the different elements that came together that season for Glamorgan to to make them a county championship winning side? Well, I'm not going to be particularly original here. 
I think there were five reasons, basically, starting with the signings of a new coach and a new strike bowler in Duncan Fletcher and Wacker Yunus. Uh, I thought they were two inspired and inspiring decisions, which I'm sure Mike can talk to us about, which paid huge dividends. They, they, they were two outsiders who, who crossed the Welsh border to help the Morgan retread the path to victory. Uh, Fletcher came in with new ideas and drills and excellent man management skills, and the players completely bought into his methods. Wacker, well, he was, if not at the peak of his powers, and in my view, certainly very near it. Uh, his pace and reverse swing bowl teams out. He supported Steve Watkin brilliantly, and he helped bring on Darren Thomas, and, and he became a vital part of the Glamorgan family. Um, I think Welsh identity was also crucial. It, it helped to create a unique team spirit. They were a group of players who'd grown up together, had come through Welsh cricket together, and they all contributed in their different ways as the team, indeed the club, the whole club, gelled together to fantastic effect. Robert Croft explained it pretty well in the book to me. He said, Tony Cotty once said to me that we'd done so well because we were a crowd of lads who played Colts cricket together. We've been very successful juniors and we brought that confidence with us into first class cricket. Third reason, as in 1969, I thought they were a very well-balanced side in terms of batting and bowling and they were superb in the field. And there was also this sense of collective responsibility. You know, if a player hit a bad run of form... Uh, teammate would step up to the plate and deliver the goods. Some players contributed on a more regular basis, like Matthew Maynard, Hugh Morris and, and Steve James with the bat and Wackar, uh, Steve Watkin and Robert Croft with the ball. But everyone in the squad made a significant contribution when it was needed. And um, as everyone acknowledges, it was a real team effort. Uh, the fourth reason I would say, Steve, was the Glamorgan family. And I think that's the perfect way to describe the Sophia Gardens operation in 1997. Everyone was looking out for each other and all their efforts came to fruition perfectly. And again, I think Robert Croft summed it up well in the book. He said, the key thing about Glamorgan is that everybody is pulling for everybody else, from the chairman to the caterers, from the physiotherapist to the groundsman, from the coach to the most junior player. We're all working in one direction. Everyone is prepared to listen to other people, something that Fletch has instilled in the side. Through the help of the coach, Matthew, and the senior players, we have found a direction which has been missing since 1993. And just away from the cricket, and I know I'm, I'm mentioning this because two of the people involved are, are taking part in this podcast, Mike and Joan. I wrote, behind a championship-winning cricket team lies a very well-run club in the more spacious part of Glamorgan's porter cabin headquarters, the committee men meet to decide the policy. Down the corridor and around the corner, in homely but cramped conditions, the boys and girls in the back room put it into practice. I wanted to show that, as Mike says in his chapter, echoing Prince Charles again, it was a real team effort. And the final point I'd make is that, as we all know, Glamorgan represents not just a county, but a whole country. And it's reflected in their support base, which covers the whole of Wales and beyond. And a chapter near the end of the book is devoted to those fanatical, long-suffering and ultimately loyal Glamorgan supporters. I think their backing, uh, especially at Taunton on the last day in the 1997 season, drove the team on to their famous victory at the end of a truly glorious summer. OK, thank you, Graeme, for that lovely uh... Uh, introduction. We're going to come back to some of the people that you've mentioned, obviously, and talk a little bit more about them. Sure. Very early in the book, you change your focus, perhaps from the players and the team to, as you say, people behind the scenes. 
Uh, and Mike, um, you were interviewed for the chapter entitled The Boys in the Back Room. So do you want to tell us a little bit about your uh, arrival at Glamorgan and how you were in the position you were? Uh, and also maybe tell us about the other boy in the back room as well. Sure, yeah. I, I think Joan and I would probably say it was a fabulously well-run cricket club with a reasonable team um, behind it on the field. <laughs> but uh, that's, that's just the two of us. Um, yeah, I mean, I think in, in terms of how I, you know, I ended up there, I mean, it's a, it's a pretty long-winded um, story. I've regaled it to everybody, so I can't believe there's nobody out there who doesn't know it. But I'd finished my degree. I was trying to get into journalism, um, of all things, and I'm struggling to find work. And in the end, I thought, well, David Gow's my favourite player. I'll write to the chief exec of Leicestershire, um, as secretary as he was then, a guy called Mike Turner. And um, he very kindly wrote back, which in this day and age would be considered pretty rare, I imagine, because people just don't respond to those sort of things. Um, and he said he couldn't offer me anything, but he gave me a list of addresses of all the others, uh, the other 16 as they were. And um, so I wrote lots of Tipex marked you know, letters to them, typos all over the place. And half a dozen of them came back and they actually ended up being good friends. You know, Tim Lamb at Middlesex, Chris Hassel at Lancashire, Steve Coverdale at Northamptonshire, Mike Vokins at Worcestershire. And Phil Carling was secretary at Gamorgan at the time. He's rang me up and said, do you fancy coming in for a chat? So, I mean, coming in for a chat when you're going from Bradford in West Yorkshire right the way down to, to Cardiff, it's not the kind of thing you'd pop in. Um, but I thought, well, I haven't got any other openings here, so I might as well get on there and get off my backside and do it. And I went in and he said, well, we can give you six months. We won't pay you, but we'll put you up in a flat. John Solanke, one of the players, had a flat in Canton. Um, and I thought, well, why not? You know, and you just make your own luck, I suppose. So, you know, long-winded way of going about it and then just gradually moved up from there. Tony Dillaway was the guy you referred to as the other boy in the back room. Um, Tony looked after all the commercial stuff. I remember the first day I went to Gamorgan, he actually said to me, could you bring my bag? And I said, bring it yourself. And Phil Carlin <laughs> said, I think those two are going to get on okay. We were very different people, very chalk and cheese, but I don't know, we just got on. You know, we, Tony wouldn't have been the type of guy that I would have gone out for a drink with. You know, he's a red wine drinker. I was a pint drinker. And, but it clicked. It worked, you know. And, and when we got to 97, I was looking at the cricket and the operations. He was looking at the commercial stuff. And, you know, between us, it just seemed to work. We had a great team. It was a very small team. Journal will talk about that. Um, the, the three girls, we had Phil Pullen doing the accounts, Andrew Walker doing the catering. There weren't a lot of people running around that building, which is probably a good job because it wasn't the biggest. One of the things that I, I guess many uh, cricket supporters are always interested in is how you manage to get people to come to the club. And I think one of the noticeable things about the cricket after the late 60s and early 70s was capturing uh, an overseas player that could come and transform the uh, the possibilities for the county. Can you tell us a little bit of the background behind the signing of, of both Wakar and Duncan Fletcher as coach? Yeah, I think um, Duncan came first. Um, and he was over in the summer with South Africa A. They were playing um, on a tour. They had a very strong team. Jack Callis was in it, Lance Kluzer was in it, and they were they were battering everybody. And they came along and hammered Gamorgan in, in, in the three-day game. And Roger Davis had mentioned him. And then Hugh Davis mentioned him. And we were just thinking about whether we should change. We didn't have a coach. Um, Alan Jones, bless him, floated around the first team and the second team. We just brought John Derrick back uh, to look after the second team. But there was nobody really with the first team on a regular basis. And we felt there needed to be. 
Hugh and Roger said, well, what about going to talk to Duncan? Jack Bannister was a co-opted member of the cricket committee in those days. Uh, Jack lived in Pontypridd. For some reason, I never quite understood why, you know, for a Midlands player. But um, Jack paved the way for them to meet him. And they went up to Worcester. And I can't take any credit for that one. I mean, I may have done the contract, but it was those two who thought that, you know, Duncan was the right guy to go with. And obviously the committee and everybody supported him. We thought it was important he talked to Matt, first and foremost, uh, which he did. And they got on. He, he talked to Dean as well, but I don't think he understood Dean. Um, so we, we had to wait for Dean's language to come through a translator, I think. But Duncan was sorted out, I think, pretty much before the season had finished. Wacker came about from a conversation between Tony Lewis and Richie Benno at the BBC at one of the test matches. I think Pakistan must have been touring in 96. He was available, but there were about half a dozen counties interested in him, as you can imagine. We looked at our team and thought, that's a pretty well-formed team. Um, but we do like a strike bowler. And Tony set up a meeting for us in London with uh, Wacker and with his agent, Jonathan Barnett, who went on to be well, Gareth Bale's agent now. So I went up with Matt and we met Tony Lewis up there and we went in there and Matt, I still tell the story to Matt. He, 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 he thinks I'm kidding, um, but Wacker loved it. You know, he was, we were making a real fuss about him. He loved the fact that it's Wales. You talked about players coming to Glamorgan. One of the things that we were able to sell was the fact that we were a country. And a lot of these overseas players weren't particular fans of England and therefore playing for Wales effectively was a, a big drawing card for them. Um, and, you know, I went into a room with Jonathan, just the two of us, and, you know, everybody's sort of looking at me, wishing me good luck. And Jonathan sat down and said, look, the six counties interested. This is what he wants. If you, are, if you offer that, he will come to you. So I said, well, we'll offer that. And he said, brilliant, let's get the drinks in. For about literally 15 seconds. We were in there for about 50 minutes, just chatting about football and various other things. So I came back out and, and uh, Jonathan must have gone off to the loo or something. And Matt said to me, how'd it go? How'd it go? I said, well, it was quite tough, but we got there in the end. I think he'll be okay. You know, and, and he just couldn't believe I'd pulled the wool over his eyes. It was probably the shortest contract negotiation I ever had. You mentioned making a fuss of, of Wakar, but reading the chapter, there's a very, very real sense that you felt making a fuss of all the players in the squad was a very important thing for you to do as, as club secretary. Tell us a little bit about that, your philosophy. Yeah, I mean, I, I think probably through gritted teeth, because you, you don't like to give the players anything, really. But um, uh, And I, I quite liked a curmudgeonly reputation of, you know, being miserable in terms of not giving them the money they wanted and all that kind of thing. But deep down, you look at what you know, it's the little details. You try and look after the families. You try and remember, you know, key key birthdays and stuff like that. And, and it, it's the players who are left out who need looking after, not the players who get picked. And I think two thirds of the way through the season, Cots got dropped, um, and he had to be dropped because he was he was playing really really badly. You know, he, was, he couldn't get the ball off the square, and you've got to look after him. You've got to keep his ego going. And he eventually came back in and played a key knock in the penultimate game against Essex. We were twenty for three chasing one fifty, and he actually shepherded us there. And that's a player who's in no kind of nick at all. Talk to him, help him, you know. So you then in touch with John Derrick to say, well, when he comes back with you, you've got to put your arm around him. And it wasn't a big squad, so it wasn't really that difficult to do. And I think in those days, I'm sounding my age now, but in those days, money wasn't everything. You know, it was it was a, TV wasn't everything. it. Was all about just trying to win the game. Um, and you know, I think you could do that with a. Just, I think Graham will correct me if I'm wrong. There's only 14 players played in that season. Um, right. Yeah. And I mean, Alan Evans only played one when Hugh went over his ankle in Abergavenny. 
And I think Butch played when Dean Koska didn't play. And apart from Mike Powell for a couple of games for Cos, that was it, you know, because you've got people like Colin Madsen who couldn't get in the side, you know. So it was, I'd say, 18 players, something like that. It's quite easy to look after them. They were good players, don't tell them, but they were good players. <laughs> Thanks, Mike. Uh, we'll hear a lot more of uh, your opinions about all the players in a little while. Let's move to the next chapter, if you like. And we have uh, Take Three Girls. Uh, we have one of them with us tonight, Joan Pocket. Hiya, Joan. Um, Hi. You want to tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to be at Glamorgan and a little bit about the other two girls that were mentioned in the chapter as well? Yeah, there were three of us, three girlies. I always called us girlies. Uh, Vicky Snook, Carol Parry-Jones, who became Steve Watkins' wife, so it's Carol Watkin, uh, and myself. And we were three girlies that sort of more or less were at the front of house. It was my first season with Glamorgan, 1997. Uh, and I happened to come along there because Peter Walker, who you just mentioned earlier, I worked for him for 11 years. Um, he moved on to Glamorgan, I think, if I remember rightly, to develop the Cricket Board of Wales. Uh, and uh, one day told me there was a job going and I should apply, which I did. And I got the job. I quite enjoyed the job, actually, because it was like two two jobs, one in the winter where you did all the admin and uh, the accountancy. I helped the accountant uh, doing accounts. Uh, and in the summer, it was more uh, with members and people coming into the club and meeting and greeting, which I enjoyed very much. Sometimes it could be quite stressful. Uh, some of the members uh, perhaps weren't as polite as they could have been but you just have to uh, keep going, uh, keep your cool, uh, keep repeating, uh, I understand what you're saying, however, and uh, sometimes they went away quite happy. Were you a cricket fan, Joan? Did you like the game? Did you watch the game? I didn't understand a great deal about cricket, however, I had been going to the Sunday matches with my husband, who is a very keen cricket follower, um, and we used to go to the Sunday matches. I used to sit on the boundary and admire the Dutch player, whose name Roland, I forgot. Roland Fab. That's him. Roland, God, yeah. he had some gorgeous eyes. Dean, anyway. Dean saw him the other day, Joe, just out of interest. Really? Yeah, yeah really. Um, I'm amazed he anyway, could his eyes from about my... 250 yards away, Joan. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, that was really my interest in cricket. And, and I, I have to be perfectly honest, one-day cricket is, has always been my favourite. Um, I didn't understand a great deal about the technicalities of it, and I used to have mm. to listen on the radio to Edward Bevan, who was giving the commentary at that time, so that that's what I learned a lot of cricket about. I understand at one point during the season, you did end up being the commentator for one Glamorgan fan. Is that right? I was, yes. yes. Can you tell us a little that, bit about that? Yes, certainly. Uh, it just so happened that we were. it was exciting. The, the finish of the match was coming up. I uh, and all the girlies and everybody were in Mike's office where we could see the game. Um and just as Wacker was getting prepared to bowl the last balls for us to win the match, the phone went and I happened to uh, answer it. Uh, one of the members wanted to know uh, what the score was as Wacker started his run up. And I uh, just commentated what was happening uh, and then screamed down the poor fella's ear. 
Only <laughs> <laughs> rage. People having to ring the office up to find out the score. I mean, it's different age, isn't it? It is a different age, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, that was my one and only commentary. Nobody ever asked me back again. And presumably, at the end, when the winning, when the winning kind of the last ball was bowled, you were both kind of cheering and screaming at each other down the phone. We were all screaming and uh, cheering and dancing around the office, and the poor guy at the other end was also cheering and screaming and hopefully dancing around his lounge. Joan, we'll come back to you when we go through the players. Please feel free to jump in with any other little stories or memories of, of, of anyone that we mentioned. Thank you. Um, our final guest is uh, Alan Rhys Chivers. Uh, he'll be known by people on the podcast as, as an interviewer. But uh, Alan, back in 1997, you were a 12-year-old supporter. Yes, I was. Yeah, it feels like it's a completely different age. But uh, it was just, it was great growing up watching Glamorgan at that time. You had some of the, well, the, the stars, I guess, of that era, Matthew Maynard, Hugh Morris. You could just reel the whole team off. I guess that, that was the nice thing as a youngster growing up watching the team. You knew the team from 1 to 11. Maybe in football, rugby, you don't get to know the players in the same way. And being an avid autograph hunter myself, I was always hanging around the changing room waiting for the players at the end of the game to sign the cricketers, who's who as it was in those days and uh, it, it was just great getting to know the the boys really and, and just following them as, as as the success came. And you went with your dad, had you been going for several seasons uh, before that season? Yeah, I started going, I think I was about probably about three or four, I think my main interest at that point was just getting an ice cream from the little hut at St Helens and uh, I don't think there was much interest beyond that to be honest at that point but just sort of getting to, to watch a little bit more cricket, getting into it a little bit more, getting to know the game, and just came to love it. You had a little bit of contact with Duncan Fletcher during that season. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, I think it was Matthew Maynard that introduced us, actually. As I said, you know, I got to know a lot of the players and knew most of the squad by that point, and uh, he sort of came along and uh, introduced me by name, got to know Duncan Fletcher then, very rarely sort of had a, a long conversation with him, but got to know him throughout the season. And uh, obviously, as, as you alluded earlier, he'd come from South Africa and he'd actually given me a Western Province hat. I think that was a few games before the end of the season. I think it was the Essex game then in Cardiff. For some reason, I wasn't wearing that hat. I, I think I had a, a Glamorgan hat on. And he, he just sort of came up to me and where's that hat? I thought I told you to wear it with pride, which, you know, as, as a child, it was just fantastic really that he'd remember that he'd given me this hat. And uh, then obviously in, in Taunton, then speaking to him after the game, we'd, we'd won, a huge win, took off his hat, the Glamorgan hat, and uh, and gave it to me. And that was just, it was fantastic. And looking back at it the other day, actually, it's got Fletch written inside it in his own handwriting as well. It's a wonderful thing to keep from those days. Indeed, yeah. Um, do you remember Graham uh, coming to speak to you or to speak to you and your dad together when he was writing the book? Yeah, I remember he, he phoned the house, actually, and uh, it was very rare that I actually spoke to anybody before my dad on the phone. But uh, on this occasion, he, he spoke to me and got my, my sort of recollections of the game, and uh, I then handed the phone to my dad, which was just a, was a bit of a role reversal. Thank you, Alan, for those memories. Again, do feel free now to chip in when we kind of go to talk about some of the uh, other characters that, that were part of the, the whole success that year. Perhaps the first person to begin with is the coach who we've talked about a little bit already, Duncan Fletcher. Graham, what was your estimation of, of him and his contribution? 
Well, I, I sort of hinted earlier that uh, he, he was somebody, as Mike has said, who, who came in with a, a fresh set of ideas. The one thing that was always repeated by all the players and some of the admin staff was that Duncan was a great man manager. He, he knew how to treat people, basically. I must pay tribute to Mike at this stage because when I went to see him uh, and said, look, what about writing an official celebration? He said to me, fine, straight away. He was very enthusiastic. And, and the key thing for me then was to have access to all the players and the coach and the staff and whatever. And that came very, very quickly. I remember I, I went to Sapphire Gardens and sat in one of the porter cabins with Duncan for probably an hour or so. And that's the that interview is the basis of the chapter that I wrote. I, I just think he was really very clued up. He knew exactly what was going on in terms of the setup at Glamorgan. He'd been very well briefed by Mike and Matthew and Roger and Hugh and, and all the others who had who'd actually brought him to Glamorgan. And I think the key thing was, and perhaps Mike could talk about this, was that he didn't jump in straight away, Mike. He, he sat back and looked at the players and had a good look at them before he actually started making suggestions. Matthew actually said to me at one point, have we, have we signed a mute? Um, because he, he, he must have gone seven or eight days without really getting involved at all. And he was just, well, I ain't weighing it up. But what, the two people he was talking to were John and um, Alan behind the scenes. But he just wanted to just you know, let the players sort of do their stuff so that you could assess how they were going. Did you have much contact with him, Mike, during the season? Would you have regular meetings or? Yeah, plenty. You know, you have to really, um, you know, you, not only because you've taken a chance of bringing a particular person in, you're trying to make him feel at home and supported. And also he was a really good man to be around. I mean, he's got this reputation for being door and defensive and he's nothing like that. You know, I mean, I think he just... He just doesn't open himself up to many people. And I was lucky that he opened himself up to me. I mean, we had, um, during lockdown, Dean organised a, a Zoom call for all the players. Um, and then he, with a big fanfare, he brought Fletch in as well. We had Adrian Dale in New Zealand as well. Um, so Fletch still, he still values the time here. I mean, I've got a photo up on a wall somewhere here of him in his... Um, Welsh rugby shirt, which we bought him after we won the championship at Taunton. He kept it on for ages. Yeah, he loves it. But Graham talked about certain qualities. I mean, I think for me, it's his consistency. Um, we were we were bowled out for next to nothing um, by Middlesex. I think we conceded a first innings lead of 38 and lost by an innings. And, you know, bowled out for 30, 31, something like that. It was 38, you were right. Yeah, yeah. and, and I, I remember sitting watching that, just thinking, oh, yeah, I mean, Hugh Davis, bless him. I mean, he loved a meeting, did Hugh. And, we, you know, if there was ever a crisis he could engineer, he would find something to, to have a crisis about. But that one deserved it. Um, and I was just thinking it's the end of the world. And Fletch just said, don't worry about it, it happens. You know, and I said, that's not really much of the defence. You know, don't worry about it, it happens. But the next game, they went up to Lancashire, which was hilarious for all sorts of reasons. But they ended up winning the game comfortably and bowling Lancashire out for, for next to nothing themselves. Um, and that set them up. They won two games at Swansea after that and moved on from that. But that game, the way Duncan just had approached it, it was always as if to say, never get carried away when you won. Don't get carried away when you lose. Just And he, he sat, you know, if you're sat on a balcony, I've seen coaches who've got terrible body language and they're too invested in the game. Um, he, you wouldn't know whether Glamorgan were doing well or doing badly if you looked at him. And I, I love that about him. Technically, he was brilliant. Best coach I've ever seen by a country mile. Good man. And, um, you know, still still a good friend now. 
Okay, we've heard he's a good man manager. How was he with the women, uh, Joan? Did you uh, get to speak to him? Uh, did you have any kind of interactions with him? Yeah, we did get to speak to him, as we did with uh, all the players and all the committee, everybody. They were always very courteous to us girlies at the front. Um, I just, I found uh, Duncan very quiet, very gentlemanly, always very courteous to us all. And his wife was charming as well. And uh, when they did uh, leave Glamorgan, uh, they always came back. And Duncan's wife always made a point of coming into the club and seeing how we were doing. Okay. And uh, Alan, any other reflections on Duncan apart from uh, hats? Possibly comment on this, the technicalities, but as, as everybody said, really, it's just great seeing him around the club. He's always such a pleasant person. As I say, probably had very few conversations with him at length, but he's always there with a smile on his face, always a pleasantry, some kind of greeting. And it, it was just, it was those little things, really, that he was sort of making the effort with people. And I think, particularly supporters will appreciate that as well. I think one, one example, Stephen, of, of the, the business-like nature of the sort of pre-season, uh, Mike Powell, they, they, you put a one net up on the, like the leg side, he's sweeping the ball, you know, Fletcher's throwing balls at him, he's sweeping them into the net, and gradually the balls will disappear into the distance, and Powell just leant back on his bat. And I just, uh, Joan mentioned my office overlooking the, the field. I used to smoke in those days, so the doors were generally open. And all I heard, and I can't do the accent very well, but all I heard is, Paul, what am I? You're lucky. You hit him, you get him. And I thought, okay, that's different as well. Um, because John and John Derrick, nice bloke that he was, would have probably tried all around the field picking the balls up for him. Um, and he's just flipping it and saying, you've got a job to do it, lads, do it. Adrian Dale said, I think somewhere in the book, he made us 25% more professional. Yeah, I would, I would, maybe a little bit more, actually. And I mean, from Adrian, who was professional enough in the first place, um, you know, that, that's high praise. Uh, but yeah, he did. I think, you know, Viv, we mentioned Viv, um, you know, in the build up to 97 in terms of helping Glamorgan. Viv taught the team what winning was like. And I think Fletcher and Wacker helped take them over the line, really. Um that they needed to understand the first bit, you know, and I think they've taught them that a few years before. But, yeah, he definitely made it more professional in terms of the way they looked. That's the first year they had a proper uniform. Um, you know, normally they just rock up. The, OK, there's a blazer. But, I mean, days two, three and four, they'd be, I don't know, they'd look like I do now. Not very good. <laughs> We hope you've enjoyed this first discussion about Glamorgan's championship winning season. Join us next week for episode two, where we'll talk some more of the players and the other characters who contributed to Glamorgan's glorious summer in 1997. We'll talk Morris and James and Wacker and Crofty. We'll talk royal etiquette and how to get it all wrong and finding a place to stay for the final game of the season. So do join us for some more stories about the great game of cricket in the great country of Wales. Oil vow, bye for now. What's the Gadachi story you have in Gadani? Macrosech Gasusti. Ebosioch MWC pod nineteen twenty one at gmail.com. Nate, Elch Intidalin Facebook, Museum of Welsh Cricket Podcast. Nate, Intidalin Twitter, at Welsh Cricket Pod. Do you have a story you'd like to share with us? If so, please contact 
email mwcpod1921 at gmail.com or go to our Facebook page, Museum of Welsh Cricket Podcast, or our Twitter, at Welsh Cricket Pod.